visiting with us. We are happy that you're here today. We do invite you back at each and every opportunity that you have to be with us. Uh, tonight we'll be back, Lord willing, at 6 o'clock. Then on Wednesday evening at 7.30. We're studying in the Old Testament. And so uh, if you can be here for that, we'd appreciate it. And hopefully we'll all uh, learn something from God's Word. Last Sunday I made available on the table a sheet so that you could check off reading a chapter or verse. Uh, it's a chapter when you have it completed. But I wanted to encourage everyone to start reading their Bible this year. Uh, and do it on a daily basis. And so if you did not get one of those, it's still on the table. I put some more out there this morning. And hopefully you will commit to uh, reading God's Word every day. And so that uh, we can learn as much as we possibly can about God. <clears throat> the man was obviously lost. <clears throat> and he saw a little boy standing by the side of the road and he pulled up beside him and said, Sonny, do you know how to get to town? And the kid said, no, sir, I don't. Then the man said, well, do you know how to get to Route 20? The little boy said, nope. The man said, well, where does this road go? The boy said, I don't know. Somewhat frustrated, the man in the car with a chuckle said, well, you don't know much of anything, do you? The little boy said with a smile, well, I know one thing. I ain't lost. Well, this week we're talking about a man who was lost. And he probably didn't think that he was lost. He was a very religious man who should have known where he was going. And I think that it's quite obvious that once he met Jesus, he began to have doubts. And in fact, he began to question the reality of what he had been taught and everything that he believed in. Just a little background about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were very religious people. They were a group of people who were... They, they wanted to be seen as pure and righteous people. And people would want to be a part of that group if they wanted to be a, a true religious person. We can see even by their name that it meant to separate. And they would separate themselves from anything or anyone that was impure. They refused to have anything to do with any kind of sinner, especially tax collectors, harlots, and Gentiles. In Luke, the 18th chapter, we find a parable that Jesus spoke, and He talks there about a Pharisee who stood before God and thanked God that He was not like other men. And he goes on and he talks about what that man did and then lists all the good things that he had done. That man was committed to being separate from anyone who was impure in the parable that Jesus told. In fact, the Pharisees were so righteous and so religious that, any, that everyone around them held them in awe. They looked up to them. And in fact, they were kind of surprised when Jesus said some of the things that He said to the Pharisees. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus made the Pharisees uncomfortable. They did not like Jesus. For one, they didn't like the multitudes that were following Him and listening to His teachings. But Jesus talked directly to them and pointed out some of their hypocrisies that they had in their life. In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 14, Jesus said, 
Let them alone, they that are be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Again, that's not a compliment that Jesus is paying to the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 15. It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Again, the Pharisees did not like what Jesus was saying. Because they were self-righteous. They were above everyone else. And they separated themselves from those that were impure as they would think. Jesus is telling them that they're making them worse when they convert someone over to their side, to their teaching. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 27, He condemned them by saying, Ye are like unto whitest sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisies and iniquities. Again, Jesus isn't saying something that's a compliment to the Pharisees. He's not saying something that's even going to make them feel comfortable. Because He's pointing out what they are. And when you look at a a tomb that would house a dead body, obviously He's making a a point, but it's not a, a good point for the Pharisees. That on the outside, everything looks good. But on the inside, he's basically saying you're rotten to the core. You're not very good. And God sees the inside as well as the outside. And perhaps I wonder if Jesus would say the same thing to us today. As individuals, would He come up to us and would He say, you're like white as separate. You're good on the outside, but I know what's going on on the inside. As you can imagine... Jesus saying those kind of things did not make Him popular with the Pharisees. But Nicodemus wasn't quite so sure that Jesus was wrong. He may have been thinking the same thing himself about his fellow Pharisees. And so the Bible tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. In verse 2, the same came Jesus by night came to Jesus by night and said unto Him, Rabbi, we know that Thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that Thou doest except God be with him. Now Nicodemus has obviously observed what Jesus can do and he realizes that there's something different about Jesus than some of these other people that he may have seen over the course of time. And Nicodemus is going to... He approaches Jesus with questions. And really, the rest of the Pharisees should have known who Jesus was. They should have known and recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, that He was a promise that God had made all the way back in Genesis. But they didn't like Jesus. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And I think that's interesting. And there's not a lot that we know about the reason why He came at night, but we could speculate But it's there for a reason. And He came to Jesus at night. And it seems apparent that He came at a time either when Jesus was available to ask questions or it was a time where He could slip in and see Jesus without others knowing it. We don't know the reason that He came at night. 
But let's just suppose that he came so he could quietly ask Jesus questions. But Jesus doesn't let him ask his questions. Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter by saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's Jesus telling Nicodemus? He's telling Nicodemus that it's time for a change. You're thinking your religion is right? You're thinking what you're doing is right? You think the way that you separate yourself is right? But it's wrong. And it's time to be born again. Again, if Jesus looked at some of us today, would He tell us the same thing? That we need to change. That we need to make changes in our lives. That we're not what we claim to be. But as we look at this discussion that's taking place, Nicodemus seems a little bit confused at that point. And so in verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, that's kind of an odd question that Nicodemus would ask. Because being born again shouldn't have been hard for them to understand. Jews used that kind of phrase all the time when Gentiles were converted to Judaism. According to an encyclopedia that I looked at, earlier, or early Jewish rabbis declared that a proselyte, a Gentile converting to Judaism, terminated all former family ties upon conversion and is considered a newly born child. According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, the Jews were accustomed to saying of a heathen Gentile proselyte, on their public admission into the Jewish faith by baptism, that he was a newborn child. And sometimes we question baptism in the early stages. John baptized. Well, when did it start? I always find it interesting that when you read that narrative, the Pharisees weren't surprised that John the Baptist was out in the wilderness baptizing. So it seemed apparent that they were used to people being baptized. And by their own admission, if that's the case, if these commentaries are true, then they would know what it meant to be born again, that you severed your ties here on earth and you've been born again as a new creature in Christ. But our Lord here in this particular case extends the necessity of the new birth to Jews and Gentiles alike. Because it is for anyone and everyone. In other words, a man or a woman who changed his religion was like a newborn child. We become a new creature in Christ. They were literally considered born again. I wanted to talk about this a little bit because we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit and God living in us and Christ living in us and the Spirit living in us and they live in us when we become a child of God. 
And when we are faithful to our Lord and we're walking with Him, we've seen the results of the fruit of the Spirit that we should have in each one of our lives. And so Jesus is aiming right at Nicodemus when He said in John chapter 3 and verse 7, "...marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again." Essentially, He's saying to Nicodemus, you've got to change your religion. What you're believing isn't right. The way you're conducting yourself isn't right. You need to make a change in your life. And many people in the religious world need to hear that message that Jesus is giving to Nicodemus. He's telling him what you've always believed, what you've practiced, is wrong. Now that makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We don't want to tell someone that their religion, when they're sincere and when they're active and and doing all the things that they're doing, we don't want to say what you're doing is wrong. That makes us so uncomfortable. But listen to what Jesus did. When Nicodemus came to Him, He didn't waste any time telling him what He needed to do. The idea that someone's religion or church might that they might be wrong is so judgmental, isn't it? Who are you to say that? I've had people say that to me. I've even had members of the church when we're going to visit someone and to talk to them about the change that they need to make. You can't tell them that. Shouldn't we want to tell them if they need to change? And yet, nonetheless, whether we tell them or not, it's still true. If their religion's wrong, it's wrong. For example, what was wrong with Nicodemus's religion? Well, there's a few things that we can mention, but I want to talk about one. <clears throat> they made their own rules. They'd gotten into the habit of not appealing directly to the Scripture for what they practiced. Instead, they appealed to their own rule book. They had their own set of directions on how to obey God. They didn't think God was explicit enough in His commands, and so they came up with additions to help people to be better. Kind of to help God out. Just as an example, I've read that they literally had a list of 1,521 rules and regulations on how not to break the Sabbath. Now, God had already specified what they could do and what they could not do on the Sabbath. But it's like a lot of people in religion, God hasn't said enough, so we have to say a little bit more. None of those rules and regulations were in the Mosaic Law, but that didn't stop them from using their imaginations. And Jesus says that that was wrong. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah say, or prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. We cannot improve on God's word. We can't take away from God's Word. 
God's Word is God's Word. And when He told them how to worship in the old law, then that was enough. They did not need to improve on it. God has specified. Their rules were the doctrines of men. Today, when you look out in the religious world today, and people go outside of the Scripture for their authority, and that becomes the doctrines of men. Such rules made their worship vain. It made it empty. It made it worthless. And God did not like it. He did not approve of it. And said that it was a waste of time because it was in vain. Brethren, I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of time in worship services over the course of my life. And I don't want to get to the day of judgment and find out that what we've done, what we've practiced all every Sunday, every Sunday night and Wednesday night when we have a devotion, gospel meetings, I don't want to get to the judgment day and find out that everything that we did was a waste of time. And so wouldn't it be important that what we do be pleasing to God and what God has told us that we must do in His Word? How could they think God would be pleased with such foolishness as them making their own doctrines to help improve what God has said? It's not just the Pharisees that fall into that trap. It could literally happen to anybody. It's as old as the Catholic Church. In a Catholic Church, they have a specific order of authority for doctrine. First, there's the Pope. And then there are various church councils that have met over the years. And then there's the Bible. And it's in that order. The Pope, the councils, then the Bible. If the Bible seems to contradict either the papal decree or a decision made by a church council, it is obvious to them that they've misunderstood something. The decision of moral men are always going to trump the Bible in their church. In other words, the Pope can contradict the Bible and he's right. The council can come up make rules and regulations that are contrary to the Bible and that's right. And that's one of the reasons why they discourage independent study of the Bible. They don't encourage their members to open the Bible and to read it. I want you to check on the things that I say. I want you to listen to the Word of God. And I want you to make sure that it is interpreted and used in the right manner. But it's not only the Catholic Church and denominational churches, and I could list several off, but it's in a lot of them. Where they have creeds and catechisms and books of doctrine that have been the rules that have been determined on what the church or their denomination teaches or what they should believe. And again, the concept is that the decisions of mortal men always trump the Bible. If you listen to some of the councils that you hear, some of the meetings, some of the conventions that different denominations have and and hold, and you listen to what they bring up and how they make their decision, you know that some of those things are contrary to what the Bible teaches. But yet, they'll say it's okay. I'll give you an example. Same-sex marriage. There's some denominations that have met and decided that that is okay. 
if it's contrary to the Bible, then it's wrong. I don't care how politically correct it is. I don't care how good it makes you feel. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Why on earth would anyone think that they could vote on scriptural teachings? Why would they do something as foolish as that? Well, it's because the leadership of those groups want to control the doctrine. They don't believe that the Bible is sufficient for teaching God's thinking. Only their rules and regulations can do that. But what does the Bible say? The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I want you to think about that passage of Scripture. I've highlighted some words in that passage, but there it tells us that all Scripture that is given by the inspiration of God, that is God-breathed, that God gave, we have what God wanted us to have, is profitable for doctrine, for what we believe and practice and teach. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, to convict people, to correct the things that we need to know. And instructions in righteousness. As I said, there are a lot of things out there in the religious world that sound good. They sound righteous, but they're contrary to God's Word. And they sound righteous because it makes people feel good. And sometimes you can look bad when you say that that's wrong. But if it's contrary to the Scripture, it's wrong. And so the Scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness. If we want to know what God wants us to do, go to the Scripture. How to be righteous? Go to the Scripture. How to be uh, teach doctrine? Go to the Scripture. What that doctrine is? Go to the Scripture. How to convict people of sin? Go to the Scripture. How to correct people that are in error? Go to the Scripture. And what does that next verse say? that the man of God may be perfect. That means complete. doesn't mean that we're going to be sinless. doesn't mean that anything like that, but it means that we're going to mature and we're going to be what God wants us to be and that we will be thoroughly furnished. That means that if we listen to the Scripture, we obey the Scripture, we're going to be what God wants us to be. I don't need to improve on the Scripture by adding to it or taking away from it. I just simply need to trust the Word of God. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I have faith in what God has told me. Why? Because it is the Scripture, and we believe that it is from God, because that's what the Bible claims. Scripture is all you need, it is sufficient for all doctrine for correcting, for instruction in righteousness. It's all you need to be complete and fully equipped to serve God. You do not need men to make up additional rules or doctrines. It ends up making our worship vain and empty and worthless. And it's a trap. A trap that we all can fall into. It can happen to us as well. 
can happen to any church, even those who are serious about believing that the Bible is God's dependable and inerrant Word. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Ye pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the others undone. Jesus is saying that judgment, mercy, and faith are important matters that we cannot ignore. They could not ignore. They emphasized tithing even to the smallest of grains. They wanted to make sure that they gave their tithes of everything. But notice Jesus said, you shouldn't have ignored those small things, but you should have done those things along with the other things that is important. Now, tithing was important in their day. Tithing was commanded under the Old Testament law. It was not optional. It was required. But as important as giving those tithes to God was, mercy was important to God also, along with judgment and faithfulness. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, and verse 13, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You see, sacrifice was something that was required in the Old Testament. But God regarded mercy to sinners more important. Have you ever heard of a church that if someone engages in a certain kind of sin, tells them, there's the door, don't let it hit you on the way out. We don't want your kind here. What kind of people don't want their kind in the church? They're basically saying we don't want sinners. They didn't want sinners in their midst to taint their congregation. But the Bible tells us all of us have sinned. And we all come short of the glory of God. Not if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. And the truth is not in us. There are times that members must be confronted about sin. There are times that people get involved in things that they should not and they need to be confronted. Sometimes people want to live together without marriage as a man and a woman. And when that happens, they need to be confronted about their sin. There are other sins that we know that people sometimes get involved with in their lives that they need to be confronted and told that you can't live like that. You can't do those things. You need to change. But they have a choice. We want them to be able to stay here, worship, and have fellowship. But it's only if they repent and change their life can they have that fellowship. Does it mean that we mistreat people? Doesn't say there's the door, hit it. That means that we're trying to help that individual to change. 
And we want you to be able to stay here, but you need to change. That means repent. Stop doing what you're doing and change. We'll do whatever we can to help you in that area if you want to change. But if you don't want to change, then we can't have fellowship with you. And that's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Where someone had their father's wife and the congregation was puffed up. Didn't have a problem with it. And Paul says there's a problem with that. That person needs to be delivered to Satan. We call that disfellowshipping. It's not to get to punish them. It's not to get revenge. But the point of it is to help them to see the situation that they're in and they need to change their life because they're on a road that's going to lead them to being lost. So as a Christian, when we run across that and we have that problem, we can't treat them like they've always been treated. We don't have fellowship with them. Paul even points out you're not even to eat with them. Why? Because you want them to realize what they've done. But you see, Jesus came to save sinners. And that's our objective. And that's the objective even in 1 Corinthians the 5th chapter and in other places where that's discussed. It's to change that individual. And when they change, then we have to show mercy and forgive. Because that's what Jesus was saying. That mercy is important also. The concept of mercy is so important that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promised, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He said that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. So if we want mercy from God in our lives, then we have to show mercy. And Paul even admonished the church at Corinth that when that individual changed, and it seems later on that we see that he did, that they needed to take him back. That they showed that, demonstrate that mercy. Because that was a soul that needed to be saved. We want mercy in our lives. We want God to extend mercy to us. God says, I want you to extend mercy to others. So my last point is this. What does it mean to be born of the water and Spirit? Jesus answered Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 5 when He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus had gone from talking about Nicodemus's changing his religion, being born again, to explaining the steps for doing that very thing. You must be born of the water and the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, the water part, I'd say Nicodemus should have understood. I mentioned that John the Baptist was baptizing in the wilderness. Pharisees and Sadducees went out there to see that. So that wasn't something that was unfamiliar to them. In fact, to this day, as I mentioned earlier, a Gentile converts to Judaism, they're required to be baptized. And that was the purpose of Christian baptism 
It was to convert us, to initiate us, to put us into Christ. Whatever term you want to use there. That's how we get into Christ. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's baptism. That final step where we believe, we repent, we confess, and finally we're baptized into Christ as Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 shows us. Notice, until we've been baptized, we have not put on Christ. You were not clothed with Christ until you made that plunge into the water. Until you were dipped, till you were immersed. In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. So you want to stop right there. Think about that. Noah had to be in the ark in order to be saved, but this passage of Scripture says that that water is what saved Noah. And when you look at the picture there that Peter's trying to get us to see, that water lifted that ark up to safety. And that's what separated him from those who were wicked in the world at that time. Verse 21, he goes on to say, and in like figure. So in comparison to what he had said about Noah, in like figure, whereunto even baptism doth now also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just like that water saved Noah, water is the difference in our being saved and being lost. We go down in that watery grave as described in Romans chapter 6. We go down in that water and we come up out of that water a new Christian. And when that takes place, when that baptism takes place, according to Galatians chapter 3, we have put on Christ. There's something different. We've severed that tie with the evil, sick world, and we've become a child of God. Baptism, as it tells us there in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, until you have been baptized, you didn't have a good conscience. But once you went under that water, Jesus washed away your sins and your conscience became cleansed. Those sins were washed away. Baptism is our initiation into Christ. It's where you put on Christ. You didn't have Him on before. And it's where you appeal to God for a good conscience. A conscience that you did not have prior to baptism. That's what it means to be born of the water. We come up out of that watery grave, as it says in Romans 6, a new creature. As Paul was told, why tarry thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. He didn't get down in the water, wherever that may have been, and start scrubbing with soap and a washcloth. He went down in that water and he washed away his sins simply by plunging as a burial and coming up out of that water. But what about the Spirit? Well, that's God's signature, you might say, on His portion of the covenant. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13 and 14, it says, "...in whom ye also trusted after ye have heard the word of truth and gospel of our salvation, and whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory." When you go to buy a house... You're required to put money down in earnest. And that money is a guarantee that you're coming back to buy that house. You could lose it if you don't come back. But you put it out there because that's your guarantee that you're going to buy it. When we obey the Gospel, God gives us a promise that if we're faithful, that we'll have that home in heaven. He's promised us that when we believe and we obey, that when we complete that process by baptism, that our sins are washed away. And so God places His Spirit inside of us that seals us. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, "...but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his." In fact, you can't be a Christian without having the Spirit in you. In Romans chapter eight, verse fourteen, for as many of us, or for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That's why it's important that we have the fruit of the Spirit demonstrated in our lives, that people can see it, that it is produced. Why? Because if we're walking in the light, we have that promise of the Spirit. And that if we're walking in the light, then we know that the Spirit dwells in us by the life that we live, the way we conduct our lives, the things that we do. And so God has promised two things in this passage that Jesus is talking in John chapter 3. First, being born of the water is baptism into Christ. And being born of the Spirit is where God promised to put His Spirit inside of us. And that's exactly what we see on the day of Pentecost. When the multitude was gathered together and the apostles stood up to preach and Peter began to speak, he preached unto them the good news of Jesus Christ. How He had died for their sins and that He was buried and He was rose and now was reigning, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And he told them that by wicked hands they had crucified Christ. And they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And what did Peter say? Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin. So there's that act of baptism. They go down in that watery grave of baptism, the water, and they come up, have their sins washed away, and he goes on to say, And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit that we have that guarantees our salvation if we're faithful to God. And so we know that the Scripture teaches us that we need to do those first five steps, but it also teaches us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit and that we can become a point where we're lost again. That was a message that Jesus gave to Nicodemus of why one needs to be born again. It needs to be born of the water, that's baptism, and the Spirit, which is the gift that we receive. This morning, if you're not a Christian, you can do exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus. You can be born of the water and the Spirit. 
question is, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That He is the Messiah? That He was sent to this earth to die for our sins? And by doing so, we realize that we need to be reconciled back to God. That He made it possible that you and I could have our relationship with God and call Him our Father and be a child of His. This morning, if you're not a Christian, you need to put your faith in God. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 tells us that. We must turn away from our sin. That means repent of sin, as Jesus said in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. We must confess His name according to Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. We need to confess Him before men that He is the Son of God. And then we need to be buried with our Lord in baptism as we see demonstrated on the day of Pentecost based upon the command that Jesus gave to His apostles. And then we see the, the picture of what it represents. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in Romans chapter 6. You can do that today. And I would urge you that if you're not a Christian, to get on that road, to get on the right path, to do the things that you need to do. And if you're in the wrong religion, I would encourage you to change before it is too late. Because the Scripture is all we need in living a faithful life to our Lord. But it's important that we read those, understand those things that Jesus says, and His apostles. So this morning, if you need to respond to the invitation, you can come and have a seat up here on the front row while we stand and sing.